Good evening, this is Chase Bailey from Left Bank Films. Our second episode of our podcast, The Love of Film, deals with our favorite comedies and other genre of the 1940s. Our podcasters tonight are Kate Jurdy, Dennis Collins Johnson, Brigitte Abreu, Freeman Fletcher, Todd Hunter, and myself, Chase Bailey. I hope you enjoy it. So, so this week we're going to do um, the same order, number three first, uh, and then we talk about them. And uh, Dennis, you're off to number one. Well, my number friend. Three. I'm sorry, number three. Number three, yes. <laughs> well, my number three choice, and it was very difficult. First of all, I have to tell you my little list, which was Arsenio Lole's Philadelphia Story, His Girl Friday, Bishop's Wife, Woman of the Year, and my third choice, For Real, The Great Dictator by Charlie Chaplin. Ooh. And um, yeah, The Great Dictator, uh, pretty bold, you know, for a guy to write it, star in it, produce it, direct it, score it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> What a, what a tour de force. So, um, you know, and the fact that, uh, you know, some people afterwards said, well, you can't make fun of dictators like that. They're killing millions of people. Well, sometimes humor is the best weapon because um, everything's, everything's overly serious. Um, so I think, uh, I, think it's, I think it's a great film. I've, I've watched it a number of times. He really skews Hitler, or in this case, Adenoid uh, Hinkle. And uh, playing two parts, not only that, not, on top of everything else, playing two parts, playing the, uh, the Jewish barber as well as the, the, the fascist dictator. Um, what else can you say? Uh, his first sound film. Um, Charlie, Charlie, Charlie had a hard time letting go of silent films. Uh, and rightfully so, because he was the master. Not that there weren't other great people, but uh, for, to come out with this one in 1940, uh, you know what, really 20, 30 years after silence went bye-bye. Well, 20 years after silence went bye-bye. 10 years. Okay, I got it. Um, anyway, I, that's that's my choice. Uh, great film. Uh, loved, always have loved Chaplin. I still love watching his silent films. His comedy, I learned incredible amounts from his physical comedy, his timing. And uh, it seemed to become natural to him. Yeah, he had a lot of experience doing, um, doing uh, you know, shows, uh, the... English equivalent of vaudeville um, in England, but uh, but wow, genius will out, and uh, his certainly did. I just have to say in passing that uh, when uh, our mutual friend Gene uh, McDaniel's, uh, when I was working with Gene back in the '70s, we uh, we went A and M Records was really the home, and and I, I went there a lot with Gene. A and M Records was uh, housed, and I think still is, in Chaplin's old studio that he had built way away from town. That <laughs> even in the '70s was right smack dab in the middle of Hollywood. And um, uh, had I really been aware that it was Chaplin's place, I kind of knew it, but I kind of didn't care because there was still a whole lot more going on. I would have uh, asked to explore the place and, and looked at it from an historical point of view, which I didn't. But looking back, um, it was uh, it was an experience to be there, to think of all the vibes that were there that I was kind of ignorant because I was only in my early 20s. Um, anyway. So there you have it. There's my choice. I could discourse on for hours about that. Really, I couldn't. But um, uh, yeah, and uh, Chaplin's, um, I just want to say Chaplin's uh, cinematographer, Roland Tothero, um, did uh, did a number of things with him. 
Um, and uh, I don't remember exactly what else at the moment, but um, you know, the cinematographers a lot of times made or, or broke a film. In fact, sometimes when Gene and I talked about doing films, we said, well, we're first time directors, but we know what we want. We get a great cinematographer and uh, tell him, okay, make this happen for us. So I think in a lot of ways, a great, a great director can do that as well. Well, you're, you're on now for your number three. My number three is um, directed by, I just want to double check the year, Charlie Chaplin, written by um, Charlie Chaplin, based on an idea by Orson Welles. Um, oh, yeah. And, you know, but it depends on who you talk to and what you read, <laughs> that it was fully written by Welles and, and Chaplin bought it off him or that the idea was based on and Chaplin wrote it. I, I wrote it. I'm, I'm going to go with the latter. <laughs> and um, it's Monsieur Boudou, which was um, Chaplin's basically last film with the, um, I think it was the last film in the United States and it was his last film with the tramp. And I loved it so much. Um, and I actually sent a message to Chase. I wanted him to watch it. I loved it so much. But um, it's just, you know, I mean, it's so trite to say, but Chaplin is genius um, based on a true story about a French murderer. Um, but he intertwined too, based on, I think, a French and then a British. And so they were true stories of two um, convicted murderers. and. and Britain and France, and um, he's basically this like blue beard character who married. It was during the Great Depression. He fell on hard times, and he was. Do you guys know about it, or do you want me to give you a quick synopsis of it? Yeah, I've, I've seen it a bunch of times. But go ahead. That oh, okay. quick synopsis would be good. Yeah. Okay. So he basically fell on hard times. He was a banker during the Great Depression. He had a wife and a kid, who we only really see once in the movie. And, yeah. Yeah. Right. And they were great. And it was fantastic. And you see, actually, I want to interject. Well, I'm going to come back to that. And he to make money for his family and, and to, to do good by his family. He does a lot of really bad. And he hooks up with these wealthy um, socialite widows and murders them and takes their money. Um, and makes a comedy out of it. And makes a comedy. That's why I'm smiling, not because of the... the Let's kill somebody uh, else. But yeah, but the, I mean, only Chaplin can make it comical, right? And um, Martha Ray is brilliant. Yeah. And she's so great. Um, but I loved, I want to go back to when they, um, you, you're introduced probably like midway through the film, Dennis, to his family, his, his kid and his wife. Yeah, about, mid, about midway. And he, you see- To Mona yeah, and the he, kid, yeah. He's basically himself in it. Like some of the things he was saying, his, um, they were talking about getting together with friends and this person does this. And his, his um, son says, daddy, why don't we eat meat? And he said, um, we don't because we're vegetarian. And he is a real, he was in vegetarian in real life. So you're seeing throughout the movie, that's just one snippet, parts of who Chaplin really was. Um, and throughout, you, you get these anecdotal phrases of, you know, these just pieces of gold that Chaplin has written and intertwines into the movie and mini monologues that, much like the great dictator, um, show a great side of humanity. Um, of culture at the times. And I, I just love how Chaplin, like, 
I don't know, in Hollywood, I just find like, it's great to touch on cultural topics. And then people- so, social, com- social commentary, yeah, for social sure. Social commentary, but in, in a good way, right, with Chaplin. But I think a lot of Hollywood kind of jumps on, you know, this, well, this is hot right now. We've got to make something on this. And Chaplin is just kind of like, par- you know, paraphrasing when he said, I do what speaks to me and how I see the world and, and what I want to share with other people and what I can basically create behind the art form that I do. And it's not really whether or not someone else likes it. It's does it work for me and does it speak to me? But in, in, although that might sound selfish, and he's probably one of the most selfless filmmakers by doing that because he creates... Um, such unique pieces of art with his genius and creating, you know, writing his own compositions and scores. And people don't realize all that he does behind the film unless they probably study film or he directs, he writes, he, you know, writes the composition. And um, he's just brilliant. And I love that. I mean, this whole, it'll break your heart if you haven't seen this film, but you laugh through it as well. And, yeah. and he was going through, he was basically getting blacklisted in Hollywood and then he had to leave the country for that and other reasons. Um, and you see all of that in the film and in the end, um, he bids adieu to Tramp. So I don't know if you haven't seen it, I could go on and on, I already have. Number three. Yay. Yay. And uh, I, I totally concur. Um, it's one of my honorable mentions because I just loved it. And, and thank you, Kate, for introducing me to it because I didn't really know that film uh, until I, you told me a couple of weeks ago to watch it. And I just loved it. I just yeah. absolutely loved it. It's a, it's a phenomenal film. Yeah. Well, if you, if, if you think about the way the film was structured also, it, it was more modern than it was old fashioned rather than being chronologically shot. It was shot in a fashion that you go, okay, who are all these women that he's, yeah. and, and there's one scene. Uh, so a long scene where he's been invited, um, not invited, but he's the groom at a wedding of one of the women that he's, Gonna, Martha Ray. Martha Ray. Shows well, up. <laughs> Martha Ray shows up, who he's already married to. Uh, and she's a guest at the wedding where he's going to be the groom. And it's just a funny scene, just the yeah. way that it's all put together. You know, it's very episodic built around him, but the episode's basically having to do with each one of the, the women that he's involved with. The the ending without giving anything away. If you if Freeman or Bridget or Todd have not seen this, I don't know if you guys have seen this film. No, I'm my uh, Chaplin exposure is I've seen a few of his earlier silent comedies, and then I've seen Limelight. <laughs> like that's it. Oh, um, so I've seen the beginning and I've seen the end. <laughs> well, talk about <laughs> social commentary in the end of this. I mean, it's just he. It's like a big F you in a lot of ways. I mean, and that's why he, he stood, I, there's this one quote, it's actually taken from, I think, a, I don't know if the gentleman was a poet, but it's, it's not his words, but he used it. He said, um, I can't remember if this was the trial or if this was the end, Dennis, but he says, one murder makes a billion, 
millions a hero. He's very outspoken about war. Um, yeah. In oh, that was a very good scene. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it, it definitely is provocative. People don't want to be provoked. Um, I do. <laughs> but um, he, and he just, um, yeah, he's very provocative and he challenges the status. He, you know, I, I, I've already gone around too much and eaten up too much time, but um, I'll talk a little bit more about it. But in closing, it's not the funniest, but I look at Oscars, not that I want to compare what we're doing to that. And you guys, how many films were put under, I think Matt Damon made a joke because it was one of his films, are put under a comedy category that really aren't. Um, and there were other great comedies. I, I want, maybe in my next number two, I'll make a list like Dennis did. Of, I saw probably about 10 or 12 films and I'll let you know about that. But this was, it was masterful. I mean, a work of art and just blew away so many other of the films, including Howard Hawks films, which is one of my honorable mentions. I couldn't rightfully put that ahead of this. So that, that I'll, I'll leave with that. Fantastic. Brigitte? Oh, it's me. Um, yes, my number three is Hail the Conquering Hero, which is a Preston Sturgis uh, film. And it kind of mirrors my third pick for the dramas because it's about veterans coming back home, but it's like the comedy version of best years of our lives, yeah. <laughs> which is, <laughs> uh, I forget his name. Oh, what is it? Woodrow, Woodrow Truesmith. What a great name. Uh, comes back home, uh, but it's, he doesn't tell his family that he's coming home. He's been honorably discharged because he has uh, hay fever and like can't stop sneezing and so has been discharged from the military didn't didn't see any action didn't see anything and he meets this like group of marines I think it is um and and they're like you know one of them is like you haven't told your mother you're home that's a terrible thing to do to your mother and he calls her up and he's like we're gonna bring you home and you're gonna have a hero's welcome and the whole town believes like all these stories that the marines tell to them of like yeah he's you know look at all these medals they're like not his medals and and the whole time he's just caught up in this in this horrible lie that he's this hero and you know the girl that he loves is like you know with another guy now because she was like I didn't know if you'd ever be coming home but that guy was also discharged for having hay fever <laughs> like you know it's just the whole thing and and in the end he does come clean about it you know that they're like having him run for mayor and stuff and, <laughs> and he's like listen like none of this is true and it's so like heartbreaking for his mom and and then they all just decide that they value his honesty and they still want him for mayor. And it's like, oh, wow. You know, it's just a really beautiful, really well done ride. Uh, you know, the more that he protests, no, I'm not a hero. They're like, he's so modest. And it's, it's just the best. <laughs> I can't wait to see this one because yeah, it's about it's, the Marines. I just, I, I didn't know anything about it. I just looked it up on uh, Rotten Tomatoes and and sure enough, it's about the Marines in San Diego, which is where yes. I went to boot camp. Oh. So Amazing. I, I'm, I'm, I can't wait to check this out. 
Not in World War II, though. Not in World War II. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You'd be one of the last guys. (laughs) Preston Preston Sturgis had a great run of seven or eight films that he got to write and direct because he started out with an Academy Award-winning script. But, you know, he tanked and uh, he died penniless. I mean, it was really a, a, a meteoric rise to this crescendo of these wonderful comedies of comedies of which this is one and then uh, down it went the irs was after him took everything it's just like i, I couldn't believe it that, that he, he would died come. midway through writing his autobiography entitled the events leading up to my death yeah, um, I forgot that. which is the most preston Sturgis thing ever um <laughs> hail the conquering hero is like i think it's in that upper echelon like that whole run of his in the 40s is incredible but um it's I think it's Hail the Conquering Hero, the Great McGinty, and Unfaithfully Yours are like the the top ones for me. And Hail the Conquering Hero is definitely a hilarious and also kind of like stomach turning watch because you're like, this isn't gonna go well. <laughs> well, I, I stumbled across Preston Sturgis the first time I was doing a gonna do a show in uh, in Philadelphia and we had a hotel there the night before the show and uh on the on their cable channel was uh, palm beach story which is another one of his mm. really cool films and i watched that and i was like wow and so i very slowly watched the rest of preston sturgis's films because having read about him i didn't want to burn them all up so i waited like two or three years in between each one to see the next one and it was it was well worth the wait you did that with me when i was a teenager watching james dean films I was like, so let's watch Giant. You were like, no, no, no. <laughs> we're going to run out of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All three of them. Television appearance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Todd, you're next. Well, uh, my number three, I since we were doing comedy and others, I went with others. And um, I actually went with uh, 1948's uh, Howard Hawks' uh, Red River. Um, and one going into this completely ice cold seeing who the top two performers in it is might think to themselves that this is a comedy because you've got Jane (laughs) and Montgomery Cliff Um, and uh, but the thing is with Red River that always stuck with me is what a generational battle it is throughout it Um, I mean if 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 you haven't seen it uh, it's John Wayne plays a, uh, a character, uh, a cattle drive, uh, someone who's been work, you, running his own cattle drive for about 14 years. His name's uh, Tom Dunstan. And he's going to be ready. To, it's like his final job. There's always a final job. Uh, he's going to drive this 10,000 head of cattle back to market in like Missouri, which is a thousand miles away. And, and part of his crew, along with Walter Brennan, uh, that's going to be going in is uh, is his uh, son, uh, Matt, played by Montgomery Cliff. Because the first thing you think of when you look at Montgomery Cliff is obviously John Wayne, you know, <laughs> is his father. Um, it's his adopted son, am I correct? It's his adopted son, yeah. that's right, it is, because he had survived a, a Native American attack, that's right. Um, and uh, uh, But now Matt's grown, and he uh, served in the Civil War, so he's got his own opinions about things. And, uh, and what I really enjoyed about this film is that it's a slow burn over time. You see the two of them kind of uh, uh, picking on things about each other. And then as the film progresses, things get 
more and more heated. The divisions with the cattle drive get more uh, set down in the middle. And, and most of all, um, you really start to see, which was shocking to me because, I, you know, you associate, you know, the John Wayne with being like, you know, the classic American cowboy sort of thing. And in Red River, he's, he's, he's a, a bastard. He's, he's, a, he's a, like a fascist. He, he's cruel. He's uh, uh, very, very cruel about things. And you, you really start to hate the guy. I mean, there is, there is mutual respect. Like in real life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he, <laughs> oh, you know, and and I think uh, um, uh, John Ford famously said when he saw uh, the movie, he was like, "I didn't know the old, you know, the old son of a bitch could act." Um, <laughs> but I also wonder how much of it was acting, you know. Um, <laughs> reported well, reportedly Wayne and Cliff didn't get along, which is not surprising. Um, but uh, Wayne did respect the fact that Cliff could like stand up to him, which he had to in the movie. And Wayne was like, all right, no, he does a good job. Um, but I just think it, it, the, the, uh, it ages well because you have that uh, generational conflict going on, you know, uh, again, even today uh, between, you know, say boomers and millennials and zillennials and all of that. I take Gen X out of the equation because, you know, we seem to always be out of the equation on everything so I'm just <laughs> everything by the sidelines um we are, <laughs> we are. For worse. that uh, yeah. meme right Todd we share that meme right? yeah yeah we're the middle children of history um but uh you know uh, uh, Red River it 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 um resonates in terms of you know the youth youth quote-unquote standing up to uh dictatorships essentially you know uh, Dunstan was running the cattle drive like his own personal dictatorship and and acting out in some very cruel ways um and you know we see we still see a lot of that today politically culturally you know pull yourself up by your bootstraps you know stop complaining about everything you don't have it so bad and and you start seeing all these divisions so I I do think that it's a, an interesting John Wayne movie to watch because Wayne isn't necessarily uh, the hero. He ain't the good guy, right? He ain't the good guy. Um, um, and that was what kind of threw me. Like, I was totally expecting that Cliff was going to be like this annoying kid in it. And he turned out to be the one I was rooting for the entire time. Yeah, I think that's um, important. And the, and the film sets itself up like that. And I think in a particularly macho decade, um, the fact that, you know, you've got uh, Hawks, you got Wayne, and you got Cliff, the fact that the film... I mean, you know, more or less takes Cliff's point of view. Uh, it's kind of actually a bit radical for its time, I, I still think, um, um, in, in a little more of a challenging way to go with it. So uh, that was that's that's my choice for number three for other. Um, nice. It's probably the only. It's probably also my favorite John Wayne movie, uh, if if only for that reason, because you know it. It doesn't have the rampant uh, racism of, say, like the Searchers, um, and you also mm -hmm. have uh, uh, Wayne being seen through a much more complex lens, uh, which I can I can appreciate, you know, <laughs> decades and decades later. Certainly was shocking to see him play a relative bad guy. Yeah, I mean, when I saw it the first time, I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I, I want to go back and watch Stagecoach again because this has ruined my John Wayne for me. 
Was, was, it, was it startling at the time to, to see it that way? Was it was, What was it like? It was because we hadn't seen him. I hadn't seen him in films where he, he was like that, where he was mean, where he was mean, you know, undeniably mean. And you, I think I'm, I'm with you. You really take Montgomery Cliff's uh, uh, side because he's much more uh, um, understanding and kind, <laughs> basically. And uh, so eventually they have to clash, and that's what sets up in the movie. You know, the parallels with Mutiny on the Bounty are really strong, though. Yeah. Really strong. Yeah. I, uh, I read that somewhere. Listening to I listening to I I kind of wish I explored the category of others. I really did stick with comedy in this, um, but I do love Howard Hawks um, and Walter Brennan and listening to you talk about this <laughs> and the fact that 40s films were so cutting edge and they are still in a way um, on par with today, like some of the styles were ahead of the time, um, very kind of progressive and controversial topics even still for today. Um, so I, it's on my list now. Okay. I'm also not particularly well-versed in 40s comedies, so it was a bit of a cheat. I wasn't uh, either at all. I had, do, I had to do serious research. I had messaged Chase, and I messaged the group. I'm like, I was thinking of Bridget. I'm like, I can't find a foreign affair, Billy Wilder's film, <laughs> which kind of was in the categories that we were discussing of, um, you know, he really stuck it to them doing that one. And um, he's so great, right? I know everyone loves it, but I'm like, I can't find it. I'm going to have to order it. So I was kind of in the same boat, Todd, but I'm psyched. I've got it on my list now. Nice. It's interesting I, that, I love that one. Something that I had uh, come up for me during this process of like looking at the genre of comedy. And I tried to do that too, Kate, where I was like, oh, I'm just going to do like the things that are the funniest to me that still tickle me. And uh, it was a lot harder than the dramas. And it really had me reflecting on how comedy changes a lot more uh, generation to generation than drama does, because drama really speaks to like your heart. And there's something it's like we always get it's like there's just something very eternal about it, which is why I think we have Greek tragedies and not Greek comedies. You know what I mean? It's like what, what they found funny, probably not as much what we're going to find funny. I saw a Greek comedy once. It was terrible. Like, I was like, what is this? It was called Women in Congress and it was supposed to be funny. I was like, how dare you? The joke is that women are leaders? Fuck off. So it's interesting um, that comedy changes so much. I mean, it really doesn't ages like milk in some ways. Um, I love it. Right? Yeah. Compared to drama, compared to there are some things, obviously, that's why we're doing it, is that there are some things that stand up. But it says something about physical comedy, about broad comedy, about even slapstick, is that it's pretty much funny all the way around. You know, I mean, you watch Chaplin silent films, they're funny, but as soon as you get into, yeah, more complex things, then the humor takes a uh, reflects the society and society changes. Even if people are the same. Exactly. Uh, it's like people from my generation really don't have that. Like, it's almost like you have to switch modes of like, Oh yeah. Like slapstick physical comedy is like not as much of a thing anymore. And when people watch it, it's like that, it, they just have to like get into it it's an interesting it really is so cultural and like of the moment comedy is very I don't know it's just such a different um it has a different tenacity I think I, think, I agree and off, I think, off of what you were saying with that too Bridget I think what my generation is experiencing right now again the the middle children of history is that we grew up 
in the 70s and the 80s with a, a lot of really offensive comedy movies, like not even ha-ha, tongue-in-cheek yeah. comedic offensive movies, but like really, like you go back and watch them. And you, and I, and I mean, I will completely admit, I find myself having to shift and you start laughing in an uncomfortable way because you remember laughing so much at these jokes right but at the same time you you as you're as you've gotten older you're just like oh that's probably not the yes. best thing that's great but yeah uh, someone stopped me before I go too off the rails but I was watching reruns of friends the other day and I was like friends is really like homophobic there's like homophobic jokes in like every other scene and I was like I loved this growing up how and, but, but it's good it's like good writing and I'm like oh yeah that's like my ear can like tune to that because I grew up with it kind of and then there is that shift that that you know you, know, you spoke about that yeah, catching could, up a little bit we we could definitely go down a very deep rabbit hole right now yeah with uh, Netflix and Dave Chappelle uh-huh I, that's I saw right his comedy special last yes. night about yeah. uh, you but, know his but instead of getting pain. into that do you but, want to say your number three <laughs> I, I could spend an hour on that because i grew up in a different generation dennis and i did and it was okay to do this 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 say that 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 but we understand now as we get older oh god if i were living today and doing what i did back in the 50s and 60s it would be taboo it would be but you have to grow and learn. But I still have fun. I still have fun. Um, so my number three. I just want to add physical comedy, our generation taught when you prefaced it. And I totally agree with everything you're saying. I was actually just thinking about that recently, watching things. And I'm like, oh, this isn't even funny anymore, you know? Um, and not only that, but it's offensive. But um, I was thinking of John Ritter and how fucking great he was as a physical mm -hmm. comedian. So that's what I, when we talked about slapstick and physical comedy, I, my rose colored glasses, I, I think of John Ritter and I think he's one of the best of the 20th century. So. Same. I also, him. I find this all very tone deaf because Todd said that Red River was his favorite John Wayne movie. And I happen to know that The Conqueror <laughs> is his favorite John Wayne movie where he played <laughs> Genghis Khan. So oh, what right. the fuck, Todd? <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Cancer right? from that film. We can't count <laughs> that. That killed him and a bunch of other people. That's true. It did kill a ton of people. So, Chase, your third was? Is? Yes. My number three is I love comedies from the 1940s. I just, it's so hard for me to pick them. And all three of them are comedies. All three of my are comedies because I just loved them. And uh, it was very hard for me to select my top three and it, I moved them around a lot, but number three for me is the Philadelphia story by Kukor. I knew it. I knew, I knew it. I mean, it's Catherine Hepburn. I love fucking Catherine Hepburn, whatever she does, whether it's, and I won't talk about some of the other films she does because they're on my list, but Catherine Hepburn was to me, the single most strong woman out there. She kicked ass on screen. She kicked ass with her characters. Um, uh, and the Philadelphia story, I mean, it's silly. It's stupid uh, about a bunch of rich people getting married. And she invites her, her ex-husband to the wedding, which is stupid and silly. But 
just the, 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 the scenes, they go on and on, whether she's out swimming uh, and carried back and her new groom, uh, her new uh, fiance is, is, it's just, there's so many great scenes. And the other thing I loved about their comedies, and Dennis, you can explain this better than I can, but they were just so fast paced. Ta, pa, 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 overlap, 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 go, go, go. And, and to me, I just loved it. Uh, they talk over one another, they go past one another. Um, and to me, uh, those kind of comedies grabbed me. His Girl Friday, you know, it's like every one of those. And then, of course, it's got Cary Grant, Jimmy Stewart, Catherine Hepburn. Houston, uh, what's his name? Uh, not John Houston. Uh, the fiance for Catherine Hepburn. I've forgotten his name now, but he was a famous yeah. actor back in those days. Um, and then Kukor, just uh, to me, he was he was a very good director, just an extremely strong director. So Philadelphia Story, uh, for those many reasons, are my favorite. Is my yeah, number three? My number three. One of the reasons is you've got a really good script there and you've got a play that had a, had a good opportunity yes. to run and, and find out what was funny and what worked. And then you put a great cast into that great play and uh, holy smokes, it really, uh, it really cooks. And the part right, was developed silly. for her. The part, was developed, the part was developed for her and it was her comeback in Hollywood. She was never going to come back to Hollywood. Right. It was like, she went away to the, to the East coast, totally, you know, hated labeled box office poison yeah i mean she people didn't connect to katherine hepburn they were like who is this like weird who talks like this and like you know like people were like <laughs> and you did that well say that again she talks like this <laughs> oh how are you darling and you good mid-atlantic accent going bridget <laughs> love her i think she's great but it's also very uh it's interesting that that was her ticket back to to sort of the top of hollywood and the billing and she she owned part of the rights of philadelphia story so that if it ever was filmed she would get to play that role because she knew hollywood didn't want her to be in it um and she was friends with the playwright. What's the most famous image and from she, that film that, that, that if people who've seen it can you remember? Mine is, uh, I think it's uh, Carrie pushing her in the face and pushing her back down through the door. <gasps> oh, yeah. Right? Because, I mean, that was for her to say, yeah, yeah, do that, sure. <laughs> it was like, wait, I'm trying to make a comeback and you're going to deck me? No, but but they made it work. <laughs> right. I, you know, my favorite scene was just when Grant is carrying Hepburn back in his arms, uh, you know, after they've gone swimming. Uh, just that whole um, repartee with the reporter there and his fiance there. Uh, just how that all went down. I, I just loved it. I, 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 I love the I love the pacing too. The pacing was super. Yeah. Jimmy Stewart won an Oscar for that. Um, and I don't yeah, he did. necessarily know if it was his best performance or if it was one of those where they like owed him one from a previous performance that they gave to somebody else. But um, he does have one of the best drunk performances of all cinema in that movie. That whole mm -hmm. part where 
it, she's kind of seducing him, but they're both just plastered is so funny um, and romantic. And then that movie's other trick is uh, Philadelphia Story is my number one. Um, spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> but uh, the other trick of that movie is it has, for my money, the second best and the first best we'll get to. Um, my second best or second favorite um, screen pairing, which is Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn, who I think they did four movies together. I've seen three of them and they're all uh, Cucor did one with them back in the 30s. Chase would have been on a list if we had done the 30s. <laughs> um, called Holiday, which is, yeah, I think oh. my favorite of all of them. Um, yeah. Holiday's yeah. amazing, Holiday. and then they also did Bringing Up Baby, which was a oh. disaster <laughs> financially. I think that's part of what killed her career. Um, yeah, that was but one it of is one of but a great movie on the West. Great film. That movie's so what were they? funny. The yeah. I have a leopard. Um, yeah. <laughs> just, I enjoyed uh, Bringing Up Baby. Yeah, yeah, that's babies. one that ages well. It's funny. It's it's funny like that. Audiences hated it. They didn't get it. Yeah, weird. Yeah. I mean, if you're not giving it your all, it's like the most insufferable movie ever because it's just a bunch of people talking really fast over each other and like being really stupid. But that's what's funny. <laughs> so like, as you have to pay attention. But yeah. And again, holiday is yes, yeah, my favorite holiday. of all of those. Definitely. That's such a great movie. Okay, Freeman, you're number three. So my number three, um, uh, I want to preface this by saying I have not seen The Great Dictator. Um, what? Yeah, <laughs> but uh, my number three is a similarly controversial um, release at the time, uh, which is Ernst Lubitsch's 1942 To Be or Not To Be, starring Carol Lombard, Jack Benny, and Robert Stack. Um, it was Carol Lombard's last movie. Um, she unfortunately died in a plane crash, famously. Um, she has a, a many amazing performances, one of them, the highlights being um, uh, My Man Godfrey. Um, but she's incredible in To Be or Not To Be, which is the story of this like really crappy <laughs> theater troupe in Warsaw during the Nazi occupation and it's it's a farce and when you first watch it it's one of those where you're like yay this is in bad taste um but it's also I, there's a great uh video essay on YouTube by the um the incredible Lindsay Ellis um yes. where she talks about uh the like why uh Mel Brooks is the producer is still works today, whereas a lot of and, and a lot of comedies that kind of tried to discuss Nazism and 1940s Germany and Europe and all that um, really kind of fall apart. Um, and it's because, excuse me, um, they Mel Brooks had a way of doing it. And I think to be or not to be also has it where they lampoon the nazis they they make it it's a hilarious skewering of them but it's also i was just like i was making dinner so i was just listening to it earlier today but uh it's it, it, there's always it never undermines the threat that these characters are in so there's 
mm. a very palpable dread and throughout and it it goes to very dark places but it also comes right back there's an, this amazing jack benny basically is like the ball in a game of tennis between this nazi professor and this and spy and this nazi general and like it mm. on paper it sounds really terrible but it's really really funny <laughs> um but yeah it's so to be or not to be is my number three did you watch oh. the criterion edition i own it i you watched it on youtube though <laughs> so. what's different with that edition anything well, I'm, i i have it too it, it's i mean it's got a it's got extras. I mean, the, the print oh. is like extraordinary. I haven't explored the extras or anything yet. Yeah, Todd and I are big physical media junkies. So we are, yeah. and the criterion to be or not to be is absolutely, you know, a, a must own for. And one of the songs. great poster arts for yeah. Criterion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was always amazed at that film, the Jack Benny, because I was so used to seeing him in the Jack Benny show when I was growing up that he could handle a part like that, you know, in a movie. <laughs> Never seen, I don't think I've still seen, haven't seen him in another movie. But, uh, yeah, it was good. Dennis, what's okay. your number okay. two? I, oh. I, I got to say one thing about To Be or Not To Be. I, I watched the film. Um, I'm a Jack Benny fan. Uh, you know, Alan and Gracie, you know, Don Amici, you know, all those early comedians. Uh, uh I just didn't like him playing Hamlet in those tights. It just was <laughs> awful to me. Um, Wait, that's and, the point. <laughs> I know it was the point. There's even a line in it where, where one of the like one of the the rebellion or uh, not one of the underground leaders is like, I can't believe we're putting our all of our lives in the hands of a ham. <laughs> <laughs> I I I I. I didn't even get it to the honorable mention list. I'll tell you, I just I, I I had a hard time watching it, but I do love Jack Benny and I do love the premise. I do want to say about about Jack Benny that if you watch, uh, if anybody's not familiar with the Jack Benny show, damn good writing back in the oh. 50s television, very good writing. I mean, for all the shows back then, you can watch and you go, ah, kind of, eh, you know, but wow. And if you can get past uh, his his uh, relationship with Rochester, which wasn't that bad, but still subservient. But wow, the writing and uh, the humor, those guys had it, whoever they were. I watched that and I couldn't believe it. Some things just aren't funny anymore, but that one still was. You know, I, I, I my ex-wife and I used to listen to, you know, the Bickfords, uh, Jack Benny, Groucho. Uh, we, we listened to them all. I mean, those were fun in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. Yeah. Jack Benny just in in the film version, I I I just it it was a physical thing, it was a a mental thing. I, I just couldn't get beyond it. Wasn't the guy we were used to seeing? Yes, know? that's true. That's true. Or listening to, I should say. Or listening to, yeah. He did do a TV show, but I don't think I've seen many of those. With Rochester, it was always turned me off with Rochester. Oh, it's great. They're actually great shows. Check check one out. One, you'll be hooked because they're, yeah. they're high, very high quality, and you know, un unbelievably so. Okay, Dennis. Number what? two. 
I was just talking. Now I have to interrupt myself. <laughs> um, okay, well, uh, you know. Oh, time I, out, time out, time out. Wait, I just started. Who uh, who was the director on To Be or Not To Be? I'm sorry, I couldn't find that. Uh, Ernst Lubitsch. Lubitsch. Mel Brooks Lubitsch. also remade it in the 80s. I haven't seen that one yet. but I haven't seen that one. Yeah, I, didn't, I, not, I don't think it's as good, but. Like I've to. heard it isn't as good. Um, I think he isn't it him and Anne Bancroft. Probably like real life wife. Ask your, ask your wife if you can. Me me. Okay, well number two, I'm going to shift my number two because uh, it was going to be a uh, uh, Philadelphia story, but well, uh, we covered that. We talked a lot about that, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to have to scramble now, shit. (laughs) I I have to go. Bye, guys. (laughs) Well, I'm going to pick one that probably nobody's seen, and I I had never seen it, but uh, Grace and I stumbled across it a few months ago. For some reason, it's uh, Cary Grant. Cary Grant always comes up in these things. Why is that? He's in every one of my choices, almost. Um, Cary Grant, David Niven, and um, Loretta Young. And uh, The Bishop's Wife, it's a fantasy oh. where Cary Grant plays an angel who comes down and David Niven is a reverend, I guess you would say. And he's trying to get a cathedral built. Uh, and so uh, he's asked for guidance and, and Cary Grant comes down to give him guidance. He thinks he's come down to help him get money for the <laughs> cathedral. But what's really cool is the casting. Uh, Cary Grant falls in love with his wife, who's... Loretta Young, and who wouldn't? <laughs> I mean, Angel or not, you know? So, um, uh, yeah, he falls in love. And uh, then the, the the machinations that come from that are are really, and Cary Grant manages to do his, what would normally be 40s broad humor. He settles it down, and it's still funny in his takes and his, you know, his asides and his looks and all of that. They're not uh, they're not huge and broad like some of his other things, but they're very. It's very very good. And the, and the cinematographer was Greg Toland, who also did Citizen Kane. So you know you got quality quality cinematography. Um, and I, I loved it. Originally they were going to switch the casting, and Cary Grant was going to be the Reverend and and uh, David David Niven was going to be the angel. And Cary said, No no no, <laughs> I'm taking the angel part. And I guess he had more more pull than Niven did. Uh, couldn't imagine it any other way because David Niven does a heck of a job uh, in his in his uh, character too. So it's a Christmas movie. If you haven't uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, time's coming up. Uh, check that one out. It's beautifully done, beautifully shot, beautifully acted. It's you know it's a fantasy, and uh, you you have to accept certain things as far as premise goes. But uh, wow, really 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 a, a really a cool film. And it doesn't get great reviews. I, I looked up some of the reviews. Bishop's Wife on. Uh, you know, Rotten Tomatoes and, and some others. But in my mind, they just they just didn't watch it carefully because you're watching masters and, and female masters at work as well. You know, brilliant, brilliant cast. Uh, great, great, great film, really. A beautiful film. I, I, I loved it. I haven't seen it in years. Now I want to go back and rewatch it. But I remember that film and it was wonderful. Yeah, cool. Yeah, so there you have it. Kate. Great. So we're moving to Kate. Kate hey guys. The yeah. So my number two is Arsenic and Old Lace. Um, I think it was filmed completely in 1943, right? Bridget's a fan. <laughs> 40, 41, actually. And, and then it was released in 44. Right. 
Okay, I know I read somewhere it was 43. Yeah, they had to wait until the Broadway run. Um, starring Carrie Grant, um, Peter Laurie, my favorite. And I think Todd's a fan of Laurie, Bridget as well. Mm -hmm. I love Peter Laurie. He makes everything better. He's just so fantastic. Great supporting actor, yeah. <laughs> oh, he's so good. Um, Gina Dare, Josephine Hall, of course, the two aunts. Who? What actor wouldn't want that role? Like. <laughs> It's so and great. they originated it on Broadway. They were the original. Uh, oh, were they? they? Yeah, yeah, they were. They definitely gave most... a theater element to it, so that makes sense, Bridget. Thanks yes. for. I, yeah, Didn't you guys are going to be cast... able to help me with a lot of the history. Was most... that Freeman? I thought most of the cast originated those roles. I know. I think it was. I know the, the guy who played. Oh, was it just the two aunts? Okay. Well, yeah. uh, you know, the other one I know, it, it may be more than just them, but the one that I know wasn't included was Boris Karloff. Right. He was originally the uh, evil uh, nephew, Brother. Jonathan. And Brother. there are all those jokes Jonathan. about the role I played in high like school. Boris Karloff. Yeah. Yeah. They, were the only, they were the only two that were released from the production on Broadway because they figured it wouldn't kill it to lose the two ladies. <laughs> Like they would have to Boris Karloff was basically the featured performer because yeah, it wasn't Cary Grant on Broadway leading the leading the charge like in the film. Well, Massey so did a good job. What's that? Massey did a good job. Yeah, yeah, he did a great job. Yeah, I that joke within a joke, right? He looks a little. He looks a little bit like Boris Karloff. They just kept saying that, so I yeah. that was like, anyway, I'm an easy audience. Can you tell? But um, director, director, of course, our favorite Frank Capra. Um, later known as Capricorni, but I've got to say, I think kind of what you guys were talking about um, with It's a Wonderful Life, his films, I mean, talk about the marking of a great filmmaker. His films still not only resonate, but they're relevant today. Um, I don't know, I, I, I mean, on the subject of Hollywood recycling, not that I like to compare, but it's hard not to. I would say maybe Steven Spielberg is the closest in modern day to what Frank Capra did in terms of, you know, just these, he has a way of creating this fantasy within a reality um, where the viewer just gets lost. And yeah. um, I laughed pretty much through the whole thing of arsenic and old lace and, um, and not really a screwball comedy, but bouncing off what Chase said, and I'll mention it in my further in the future um, in my honorable mentions, which is the skill that it took to do physical comedy. It's not like, oh, that's so great. We have to give them props because they did that. No, it was like nonstop. And the hours are so crazy on film and even back then more so. And they are like, boom, 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 overlapping dialogue. I mean, his girl Fridays pops into mind is just like unbelievable. And there was a little bit of that here, but just Cary Grant's like, I, I watching him, I couldn't, believe how many modern day comedians base them like some of my favorites like john cleese he was reminding me of basil faulty and faulty towers um oh yes you know i never like, thought about that yeah so many well he i i loved i grew up watching faulty and i couldn't believe chase how many modern day comedians and when modern day i'd say like mm -hmm. 70s and beyond um based themselves and he was like a you know not only just like um a sounding board, but like the basis of what they created their own physical comedy and own comedy gestures, movements, um, how the delivery of a line. I, I just, I laughed through the whole thing. Um, the cops were unbelievably 
not dismissive because they were trying to do the right thing, but just so dumb, like for lack of a better word. But I loved how everyone was wrapped up in this capper world of how beautiful film is, how wonderful it is to create. Everyone had the dream of being a screenwriter, um, whether you picked that profession or not, because Cary Grant was in the profession. Um, in the film and it just was, and I thought Priscilla, Priscilla Lane um, was wonderful too. It was just yeah. a great- hello, hello, Priscilla, goodbye, Priscilla. We yeah, really for real. We much after, after that, you know. Really, is uh, that happen? Did that I happen? Looked, I looked up what happened to her and she just became very, she just became like a housewife and that pretty yeah. much, she had a bunch of kids. She was yeah. perfect in that. You know, I, I wanted to call attention to Jack Carson who plays the, the big cop. Because he was the consummate second banana in so many films. In the oh, film. yes. And he could he could pull it off, play the the bumbler, the fool. And I remember uh, one of the films he was one of the films he was in was I think Doris Day's first film or second film, and he fell in love with her. And he was playing second banana in there, where somebody else gets the girl, but he was in love with her and approached her, and he got dumped, <laughs> just like in the films, uh, you know. But uh, but he was he was really great at those kind of parts, you know, broad comedy. Now, now he was the, he was the cop that had the screenplay, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I loved him. Absolutely. So loved funny. Him. He's great. And you're just like, oh my God, help. I mean, it was just to the point of being annoying where it was like, help this guy. He's like ball gagged. With the and like, yeah, he's like, no, you're going to listen to my second And then Peter Lloyd, the description. Oh, so the man wanted in, um, in Washington, um, Goes by, goes under the um, a pseudonym, pseudonym of doctor, bugged out eyes, German, and you just see yeah. Peter Laurie like, it just, it's, yeah. no, Jonathan, please, not, not oh. the slow method, let's do the quick, I just, I Oh, Jonathan, oh, Jonathan. He's, got great, he's got a great line at the end, which is very subtle, and they go, doctor, are you leaving now? And he goes, yes, please. Yeah, that was, yeah, so many good things, and I need a drink, I can't do this without a drink, you know, like, let's have a drink, let's have a glass of wine. And you know, always having that, that, always having that prop uh, decanter of wine there. Yeah. <laughs> I just loved it. The focus, so yeah. Such a great, I literally laughed through most of the film. Um, I don't know. I don't know how you guys felt about it. I, I know some of you have seen it, but it's just such, it was so well done. I well, I, I, I didn't like it. the, I didn't like the film at all. Not at all. <laughs> it's my number one. So it's my number one. Oh, my number one. Yes. Number one. Yes. I was yeah. I have to switch my number one. What do I have left? Bridget, I, also, I had a feeling it was going to be your number one. I'm like, I wonder, because I, I know you love Capra. I'm like, I, I wonder do. what Bridget's going to do. I watched <laughs> it. I, I showed it to a bunch of different people. I showed it to uh, a friend of mine who is 89, I believe, for the first time. She hadn't seen it. Really? Yeah. And she loved it. And uh, I showed it to a friend of mine who is 35, hadn't seen it, loved it. He, he had some problems with some of the, the dynamics between Priscilla Lane and Cary Grant, as you can imagine, some things don't carry over. But um, I was like, just ignore that and focus on the jokes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, generation wide, it's just like, I think it really holds up. So yeah, it is, no, my, it is was my number one. Yeah. Who else besides Cary Grant could mug his way through an entire film and make it work and have you just be tickled by it rather than, you know? I Although, mean, it's, it's 
Cary Grant also hated his performance in that movie. <laughs> he did. It's just, it's, yeah, yeah. He famously kind of was like, "No, I thought it was terrible in that." And like when you watch it, yeah, he is great because Cary Grant's like the most charismatic actor of all time. Um, but when you watch it, yeah, as you said, he's just mugging. <laughs> he's mugging to eleven. Yeah. I thought he's, he was so great. He's Cary Grant. One of my favorite so performances of his because he's oh, so yeah. like how what skill to hold that level of energy throughout an entire film uh, and to and, carry it to re- like yeah he, that he narrative the has level so of, many threads he has to yeah there, there that so, level of energy you expect from a stage actor that you want from a stage actor it's cohesive here you're shooting a whole bunch of different days over yes. time and you got to bring that back and and make it uh cohesive yeah tough. So it seemed like it seemed like so many scenes that Cary grant had were like he had his brother he had his aunts he had the cops he had his fiance, and he was torn between all of them and the conversations going on with all of them. It was phenomenal. And then he had props he had to handle, whether it was the decanter or the window the box. Yeah. It was just uh, what he did, I, how he had to move. The blocking alone blows me away. Yeah. One of my favorite like jokes that that he does is um they've just told him that there are you know bodies in the basement <laughs> and and the phone rings and he goes hello oh because there's no phone <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just so out of it like it's got some really as Dennis was saying uh, uh when we talked about it the other day some really good surrealist humor of like someone sneezes and Teddy goes, I must be catching cold. And she goes, no, Teddy, dear. It was Reverend Harper that sneezed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I looked up the writer because I wasn't familiar with the writer. He didn't really do much else. That was his, that was his brilliant. He did other things. He had other films made, but Mm -hmm. nothing approached uh, arsenic at old lace for a script, you know? You know, what's interesting too. um, we were just, oh my God, I just went completely blank. <laughs> I just went completely blank on what I was going to say. You'll we have talking- a chance to remember. Oh, okay, we Kate, number I'm one, gonna, three of I'm, us will bring it up again. Okay. <laughs> you believe it? I'm going to okay. Oh, I just want to say really quickly, the fact that he, he thought that was his worst performance. I don't know if other actors can attest to this. We're not the best judges of what the best, like when I see... Okay, I'm not going to go off on a tangent, but when I see actors <laughs> nail the audition, I, I just something I, I never do. I'm, I'm, I'm just more private and I'm not judging that, but nail the audition, kill that take. No, you didn't. And first of all, do you know, right? Yeah. Second of all, we're some of the worst judges of what's good and what's bad and what we do. And the fact that Bridget, I was going to say what you said, which is, it's, I think one of the best things that he's done is a perfect example of a giant like Harry Grant thinking he was horrible in the film and absolutely. Well, what's interesting know. about that is that um, what my what my 89 year old friend said, she said, I think this is the least Cary Grant role I've ever seen him in. She said he's not yeah. together and like suave like he is in everything else. And now he's I'm not thinking, controlling it. It's out maybe, of his control. Maybe that's why he didn't like it was because it was so against his image as a you person. Is because Phil- this, this role was not like who he was. So. In, Phil- in Philadelphia story, he was a little out of control, too. Yeah, but he's still like the puppet. He's the mastermind. Yeah, yeah, he was still playing with uh, Catherine. Okay, so Brigitte, you're you're next. My number Number two two. is his girl Friday, which has been mentioned several times. 
Love it. Um, love it. And what's great about it is, uh, well, of course, Cary Grant, but Rosalind Russell deserved like a Best Actress nom for this. Where yeah. the hell was that for her? Didn't she, she, didn't so she win the Academy? No, she was. She wasn't even nominated for it. Holy shit. Okay. I, think, I think comedies very rarely are comedic performances nominated for best yeah. actor or best actress or and very rarely are comedies nominated or rarely do they win for best picture even. Why didn't um, Gary win something for that? I don't even think he <clears throat> nominated, did he? Right, because comedies aren't taken as seriously. And yeah. well, anyway, um, but yes, his girl Friday is great because it does have that quippiness. It's got it's very it's a play, and so I think I think when things are plays, there's something about it. It's it's you can see it in the actors what a joy it is to do like ten to fifteen minute scenes where you're just like verbally uh, sparring with the other person. It's so fun, and I I would love that movie if it was just a short film of the first fifteen to twenty minutes. You know what I mean? Like. I don't, I don't even care about the rest of it. Just them, just them talking to each other and Rosalind Russell going, anytime, any place, anywhere, Hilda. You know, just, just like, she, she's got this great thing of like, you don't see this, I think, in roles a lot of the time for women of that time, but like, she's got more than just like the typical read on a line and you can really feel she's infusing a lot of her personality into it. I don't know. It was just, uh, it just felt very free. There's something about that that felt so spontaneous and like they just have this great friction and it's uh great which is it, it, it i'm glad you brought that up because it just didn't get into my list um like just and because i figured somebody else would bring it up yeah. so um yeah and the stage play that it's based on the front page um rosalind russell's a man that right. the entire that whole movie is like a gender flip of the play and it which is surprising because that movie has one of i think the greatest romantic beats ever in a movie which is at the end when he's about to like let her go and he kind of flips on her Cary Grant does and she she says something to the effect of like what is that with you and it's just this like little moment where these two people who love each other way too much um but like can't stand each other uh they kind of look at each other like oh and they're f suddenly on the same page um yeah that it has some of the most breathlessly staged and written comedy of any movie and i think it, it it's a as you said it with it being based on a play being a movie being based on a play is like a really tricky thing to do because it can feel too stagey yeah um and it, it feel like it, people don't move naturally in it because they're trying to keep it. There's there isn't a lot of inherent cinematic opportunities in it because it's just talking. Um, but his girl Friday is one that it has enough energy that it just it never stops and it like a rocket on rails. <laughs> yeah, yeah and I think, Russell's amazing. I think Hawks Hawk has Hawks had set up them overlapping their dialogue to make it more realistic. And it, it I think they really clear. Sorry. No, I think they wrote superfluous sentences on the end of every line just so that yeah. they would run on and then somebody would, yeah. Yeah, there's so many jokes that if you're not really listening, you miss them. Like, there's like a tiny little one where he's like, how do I look? And she's like, better than you ever have. And he's like, well, that's not much to brag about. You know, and then they just like move on. There's no time for you to laugh at it. And I was just like, <laughs> what? 
<laughs> my favorite joke in it's when he's there reminiscing and he's talking telling the other like the third man actor ralph bellamy who's amazing in it just playing the complete clod um yeah uh, and he's telling her about this one time that they were they had a hotel room together and then like the guy that uh she was interviewing came over and he like walked out of the shower and he was like and then he came over and i walked out and <clears throat> well he didn't know i was in town uh, <laughs> just, <laughs> oh, so good <laughs> okay todd you're number two all right um i'm continuing to throw a monkey wrench into our uh list no monkey wrenches Great. allowed all monkey wrenches <laughs> um, i continue to go with other and uh, I ended up choosing for my number two, uh, 1948's uh, Bicycle Thieves uh, by Vittorio De Sica. Oh. Um, and I didn't know we were going to do other, including foreign films, but. Yeah, I just, but... I was like, there's so many like different genres and, and everything that. Well, I, I, want, I want you to explain it. And, and this is completely allowable. Okay. Because bicycle thieves are probably uh, uh, it would be number one on thousands of people's <laughs> so in, ever ever made. So well, yeah, it's so and, explain it if you haven't seen the film. Has everyone it. seen? Has everyone seen it? it? I don't think I so. Oh, I oh, have. I think they screened I it when it. I was in school, and I was it was like the one day I was. Oh sick. no! It's. Uh, it's <laughs> You, if, you haven't seen, if you it's haven't seen it, you now. need to see it. But all it's your phenomenal. movies are on my list, Todd. What's that, Kate? I said all your movies are on my list, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, is, this is streaming on HBO Max, so it's time oh. to see it. Yay! Um, it's uh, it's it's set. It's part of the neorealist period, um, and neorealism, as I'm sure everyone here understands, is is going for a level of realism. That was uh, absent from uh, a lot of the films uh, at the time, the most popular films at the time. And what one of the things I, I love about it is because it is neorealist, where you're on the streets of post-World War II Italy, you're really seeing, get, feeling it, smelling it, uh, getting a sense of the poverty at the time. And it's a, it's a pretty straightforward story where uh, uh, a man, Antonio, uh, he's unemployed. It's in the depressed uh, economy of Italy at the time. He gets a job hanging up posters, which I, which which I can uh, akin to because I part of my gigs is putting up posters for theaters in downtown Portsmouth. So I'm like, I got you right there. Um, but unlike me, he needs a bicycle to get everywhere. Um, so his and his bicycle is stolen. Um, and as a result, he and his son Bruno are walking the streets of Rome looking for it. Uh, when when Antonio finally uh, manages to locate the thief, but he doesn't have any proof that uh, that this was the man who stole his bicycle, so he's got to kind of walk away from the whole thing. But if he doesn't have the bicycle, he can't do his job. And um, the the ending is uh, is just I won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it here. But it uh, don't I mean, spoil it. Don't spoil you know, it. And I know Chase understands, but it is uh, it is a lyrical moment of sadness that is unexpected it, hit, it hits you in a place you weren't expecting um and the i will i will say that it was mistranslated initially in america called the bicycle thief 
<laughs> and there's a reason why the original title of Bicycle Thieves is very important because without it, the ending doesn't have the same impact. So it's like less than 90 minutes of your time. Definitely check it out. Um, but it's shot, I, it, it, it's shot so well. It's it's just gorgeous. You're placed immediately in post World War Italy, post World Rome. War II Italy, Rome, Rome. Yes, specifically yeah, in Rome. Um, and it's 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 of a of a time that is the desperation, as they say, is palpable. Again, it's rec it's recognizable in the times we're living in as well, and. Uh, how any of us are like one bad bad piece of luck away from a situation like this. You know, it's a very humanistic film. Um, and I, I think I also just wanted to throw, I, I was going through, again, I, I am not versed well enough in the 1940s. This entire podcast is beautifully humbling for me. Um, but uh, I realized we weren't talking much about a whole lot of European films and it seemed like a nice opportunity to, as Chase said, you know, under the umbrella of other, <laughs> uh, bringing one in um, and and saying if uh, can't uh, break up the algorithm a little bit. Yeah, it's cool that you did that because later on in the fifties and sixties, I'd be more versed in foreign films, but but forty. I'm really glad this is happening now. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, good. You know, I'm glad this worked out. <laughs> yeah, really so not like, today, but that's yeah. That's what in the future. films anyway. So well, um, it's it's different for me to be delving, as I said last time, into these kind of American films. So one of the things that, European next. Yeah, one of the things I put on my original list was foreign films. And I just listed a couple. Kurosawa did a couple of films in the 40s. Mm -hmm. But Bicycle Thieves uh, is a phenomenal film if you haven't seen it. Uh, it's just phenomenal. It's, it's shot very well. Uh, it, it's, it pulls on your emotions. Mm -hmm. It pulls on your emotions. I'm pretty sure uh, the only scene I have seen from it is the ending. But <laughs> oh, you have. <laughs> One of those, I think I was flipping through channels or something. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, have a lot of, I have a long list of those. Currently streaming on HBO Max. If you got it, go check it out. Yeah. Uh, it's it's worth it. Um, uh, it isn't subtitled, by the way. <laughs> At least I haven't seen it subtitled. Yeah. But you don't have to really pick up the subtitles. You know what's being said. Yeah. Um, uh, my number two is another Kukor film, uh, Adam's Rib, uh, Spencer Tracy uh, and Catherine Hepburn. I love Catherine Hepburn. And in this film, uh, the premise is very simple. They're both attorneys. One's a prosecutor. The other one's a defense attorney. And uh, a young girl uh, shoots her husband who's cheating on with another, uh, with another woman. And as it turns out, uh, the prosecutor picks up the case and it's a cut and dried case. Woman admits she shot him. Everybody, there's witnesses that she shot him. And uh, he comes home and goes, I'm going to get this girl because he shot this man. Didn't kill him, but shot him. And, uh, and Catherine Hepburn, who's a defense attorney, goes to her assistant, goes, go find me that girl. <laughs> and, and, of course, there's a court scene where they're battling one another. And they come home and they're in bed together. 
So it's like, it's, it's a funny premise. It's done well. Spencer Tracy's plays a very stoic part and Catherine Hepburn plays a very feminist part. Uh, and I mean that because she's taking the role of it's okay if a woman shoots this man who's cheating on her. And she takes it from the feminist point of view. And uh, forget what year. This was uh, 1949. So this really started a trend where women could actually say we're equal. And that comes out in this film all over in court in the bedroom etc and uh i just love the film it's a kukor film um hepburn uh to me does a phenomenal job again it's a little silly i gotta admit but i love the premise uh and uh i love the film yeah they were a great team actually they did did some some really cool films together um yeah, I like that one. That one, that one's nice. Any other comments on my second choice? I I've gotta never, watch it. Yeah, I've never dealt with Tracy yeah, and Hepburn. Oh. Um, I've heard of it. It's, I think it's, it's because I I it's, love Tracy and Grant so much. I don't want to see them apart. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> isn't that one written by their friend, um, actor, and I can't remember his name but anyway they they had a they had a circle of people that that would write for them um and you know knew them pretty well so it it fits them very well the parts fit them oh the, this definitely fit especially tracy tracy playing the prosecutor um and uh hepburn of course playing the feminist role yeah it was, it was very well done if you get a chance to watch it it's it's worth your time chase so, what's the name of it again Adam's, Adam's rib. Okay. Oh wow! Interesting title. Yes, I, I it is. Wanna, I want to add, um, and this is rare for me, but I think it's because they're visually right in front of you, acting, and in so many pieces together. And I don't know. Again, this is um, this is a part of Hollywood I've never explored before, so it's been great. But I, and I love Spencer Tracy. I mean, is unbelievable, right? And just his. You know, he's been lauded for his naturalistic approach to acting before it was even a thing. Oh, yeah. Although, I mean, a little bit, you know, I would say that Gary Cooper is is on that level. Um, I have trouble watching him and Lauren Bacall together as a feminist. Um, I have trouble with it. I am not one that can't separate art from real life. And I saw myself watching Woman of the Year Again, another film, if you guys, I'm sure you've seen it, most of you, maybe not, um, that is still, to this day, a progressive film. Um, but I had trouble, um, I just had trouble. Do you mean Catherine Hepburn, watching him and Catherine Hepburn together? Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. You said Lauren Bacall, and I was oh. like, oh, sorry. Lauren Bacall. Sorry, Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy. I was like, I didn't should know she was in that. It's <laughs> 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 a weird omission, Chase. So that's just my two cents. But they, I mean, both, you know, you, you've got to give them for what, you know, what they are. I mean, there, there is there is a huge part in film history that they have been a part of, but it's. 
What a love story, oh, too. I mean, you have you have Tracy, who's a serious alcoholic and mm -hmm. likes to fight. And then you have Catherine Hepburn, who who's tries to take care of him from the time she meets him until he dies, you know? I don't see it as a love story. I see her as she, I, okay, I'm, I don't know. I see it as a karmic cycle. I think she really did love him, but it was because she didn't love herself enough, I think is what it came down to. And mm -hmm. I think she could have given that love to herself because the fact that it had to remain a secret and she couldn't even speak about their love until after his wife that he never left um, deceased. I just don't see that as a great love story. Personally. I didn't know anything about their was personal it? lives. Well, that's, that's crazy. crazy. That's because I you thought you were talking about a movie. <laughs> I didn't realize. I, I, yeah. I'm up to date. Yeah, now. but it, transla oh. it translates to the to the their chemistry. It translates into. Um, but I, I'm not taking anything away from it. It worked for them, and that was great. It just me personally, and I I know it's it's not like me, so that's why I'm vocalizing it to not be able to separate what's on film from real life. It was a weird experience for me because I can take the. I mean, there's some great filmmakers that you know we don't even need to name that people can't even watch their films because of what they've done in. In, in real life, I don't have, I can see the art and what they've done because they're not there. I'm not mm. watching, but because they're in front of me and I'm like, I don't know. It's, you mean like Polanski, for instance? I love Polanski's films. I can, I love his but films. But do you watch his films? I love his films. Yeah. Okay. China, Chinatown, Rosemary's Baby. Um, I get what you're saying, Kate, about though, about because acting, when you're cast with someone, it's about that art of making the connection. And then to know that two people, and this is why actors fall in love all the time on set is because like, it's good casting. You have two people with amazing chemistry and then it like translates to something in real life. And then it's like watching that almost feels like you're like, like everyone loves Mr. and Mrs. Smith because that's the movie where like you can see Angelina and Brad falling in love. Oh. And that's like a part of it or like Kristen and Rob and like, and it's like, a th but it's a thing for a reason, which is like great casting. Yeah. And then when you're watching it, it's a part of the art. It's like inextricable in a way of like knowing that these two <clears> people <throat> had this thing that you are witnessing and that it overlaps with something that they had in their that, private life. That's, so that's, that. that's, that's why I want to be cast with Todd at some point. That's, <laughs> a really, that's a really good point, Bridget. And maybe it's the part of me that is focused on the creation and the art and not, quite frankly, all the bullshit hype that goes along with Hollywood. Yeah, it was real and they had a great love affair. I have no idea about Angelina and Brad. And I'm not interested in it. I love Brad Pitt as an actor. He's great. I've never seen Mr. and Mrs. Smith. I probably never will. But that's a great example. Um, you articulated it perfectly. And I think you get it. because I'm, I'm sorry, Kate, but our next podcast is on Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Yeah. So. I'll be there. I'll watch it if you need me to do it. I'm not bad-mouthing him. I'm just, just saying. Like, just see, joking. I just want to see the, I know, I just want to see the art. I don't give a shit about what they were in real. You know what I'm saying? I don't okay. know. We're missing out on. We're missing out on Freeman's number two. Freeman's number two. So, um, my number two is I teased it last week and earlier this episode. Um, my number two is the fifth entry in my favorite film franchise of all time. Uh, there were six. Uh, it's 1944's The Thin Man Goes Home. 
Ooh. Uh, directed by Richard Thorpe, starring William Powell, Myrna Loy, Lucille Watson. Um, this is my personal favorite of the sequels. The first one is unparalleled. None of the sequels ever touched the first one, but um, I can watch these movies. I've watched the entire series all the way through at least twice this year because um, I didn't have anything better to do. Um, and I, it's William Powell and Myrna Loy are. Uh, talk about perfect casting shit and kate you'll love it because they never hooked up in real life even though the the public literally tried to force them to um, i don't mind if they hook up in real life i just don't like when it overshadows i know I'm well it did overshadow but they so didn't um they did, sorry this headphone's about to die um but yeah, it's my favorite of the franchise. It's the the first one not directed by W.S. Van Dyke, who directed the first four. Um, and it uh, it's, I think, the most satisfying mystery of the sequels. I think it's, it, it's the only one that isn't set in a city. Um, so it's interesting to have these characters. You think that before the fifth one, they decide to shake up the setting, but I guess not. Um, and... And who cares? Because it's wonderful. The kid isn't in this one, which is great because the kid's always the worst part of the movies. Um, yeah. And Asta's uh, Asta there, though, is isn't there. Is it yeah, Asta Asta's there? there. Yep. Uh, um, <laughs> Asta's the dog. Um, and yeah, it's uh, it's just like the a really fun little weird mystery that goes in kind of dark places. Is this um, the one in San Francisco? No, no, no. So two of them are set in San Francisco. I think two of them are set in San Francisco, three of them are set in New York, and this is the one where they go, I think it's Midwest. It's, it's, they go to uh, Nick Charles, William Powell's uh, childhood home, uh, and so we meet his parents who are I shockingly don't think I've normal. I've seen this one. It's, it's mm-hmm. great. It's probably the note that the franchise should have ended on because Song of the Thin Man, which is the sixth one's okay. Um, but this one does have the caveat, and I, I will say this one has an unfortunate scene where Nick Charles does uh, spank Nora, which is weird, and it doesn't happen in any of the other movies. They don't have a relationship like that, but it is in this one, so keep that in mind. If that turns you off, maybe skip it. But There's um, a scene in Song of the Thin Man where he's trying to spank his son, and he keeps visualizing <laughs> on his butt. That's the like, best scene the in the memory. movie. <laughs> So spanking a thing with the, the kid laughing at him. He's just like, <laughs> um, yeah. I'm sorry, Freeman. Yeah. Who was the director again? So this one's directed by Richard Thorpe. The first four were W. S. Van Dyke, and I don't know who did Song of the Thin Man. Um, but uh, I think Song of the Thin Man was made by somebody who had never seen any of the other Thin Man. Um, because it's really weird it's like definitely the most serious it's an interesting watch because it's like the first one with like actual stakes for the characters but that's kind of why it doesn't work um but yeah so thin man goes home wonderful weird it's it's like nick and nora charles walk into a capra movie and then something horrible happens (laughs) as it usually does um and yeah so my number two. I, I agree that the, the first one was the best, and I haven't seen that sequel, but I've seen a number of them, and they were slightly disappointing. But you love the characters so much; you love their interplay, and like I say, they were they were really great uh, characters together. You love the yeah. interplay. William Powell was. I remember 
he had to he had to take a couple of years off in between some of those because he had a heart attack and he had to recover. It was cancer or something like that. He had cancer. His fiance died. It was he had a. When rough he came go. back, when yeah, he came back, yeah. they gave him a standing ovation as he walked onto the set. Yeah, I, I think that was- that's the third one. I think it was uh, another Thin Man that that happened yeah. between. Yeah. And but, boy, yeah. was he a, was he a popular ladies' man? I mean, Gene Harlow. Um, uh, Carol Lombard. Carol Lombard, yeah, Clyde oh, yeah. Davis' wife. Uh, apparently, you know, it's it's a humor. Uh, it, it reminded me a little bit of uh, Phil Silver's uh, Bilko, Sergeant Bilko series, where Phil Silver's had all kinds of lovely ladies after him, and you just go, really, <laughs> really? <laughs> humor, humor works really well, you know, as far as attracting the opposite sex. Okay, Dennis, we're going to move right. forward because oh. we're getting a little short on time. But uh, well, can, you're number one, Dennis. Are I we can make, do number one with honorable mention, um, Chase? Are we, how are let, we doing let, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Since we're kind of short on time, do your number one. Uh, we'll discuss it briefly. And then uh, do honorable mentions because I got four or five. Yeah. Yeah. Mine Mine was uh, arsenic and old lace. Uh, so we- <laughs> Have have we talked about that? We've talked that to death. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so uh, honorable mentions, uh, woman of the year, uh, Tracy Ann Hepburn, which is great up to the point where he has to um, uh, domesticize her at the end where she can't get around in the kitchen and he kind of insists mm-hmm. she does. That's uh, that's pretty sexist. Still funny, though. I mean, if you look at it, because she she did really well with it. But, um, you know, that would that would be honorable mention. Uh my others were, you know, we've talked about already Philadelphia Story, His Girl Friday. Um, yeah, and it was hard to choose because there's so many good ones. Those were just the cream of the crop from my perspective. Uh, but wow, you know, what a what a decade. And it, it followed 1939, the golden year uh, in Hollywood, which had a bunch of great films that year. It seemed like the, every, it caught on and they were going, well, let's, let's keep making great films. Seems to work. <laughs> they did through the 40s. Maybe we should have done a decade from 1939 to 1948. Yeah, well, we, don't know. <laughs> we'd be really crowded then, yeah. Yeah, no <laughs> shit. But, uh, yeah, I apologize for making it the 1940s. Okay. Well, that's all right with me. You're number one. You're muted. Do you want me to give a list of what I've seen like Dennis did before? Do, should we all do that? You know, just so I'm we- sorry, what? Do you want me to give a list of the films I've seen as well and then go through? Well, uh, yeah, you Number could. one. Number one. Okay, so really quickly, um, <laughs> The Time of Their Lives, Abbott and Costello, um, The Great Dictator, obviously, um, Monkey Business, which is a Howard Hawks film I saw a while ago, Woman of the Year, Arsenic and Old Lace, um, Monsieur Verdoux, um, probably others I haven't mentioned, but that's overall. Um, my honorable mention is His Girl Friday, Howard Hawks. Um, just because of what we talked about earlier, I don't really need to go into it again, right? It's just the skill, the overlapping. Um, Rosalind Russell and, and Grant were amazing. And I would guess, I would say what, how a lot of people feel about Catherine Hatburn. I, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, Catherine Hepburn, I would, I would say I feel about Rosalind Russell. No, you mean Lauren Bacall? <laughs> 
That's why I stop myself. Um, and yeah, so that's my honorable mention. And um, I, I agree to Dennis that I, I really liked um, um, Woman of the Year. But the ending, yeah, it's a little bit tough to palate. What's um, your number one? My number one, <laughs> surprise, surprise. Can you guess what it is? It's a great dictator. Um, oh, I knew that. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, just for so many things that we, reasons we talked about before, but um, if you haven't seen this film, it's just over two hours. And, and just like Monsieur Verdoux, I would recommend if you've got Criterion streaming or if you have it in your collection, watch the documentaries that go along with it that talk about it. Um, this film, um, the U.S. did not want Chaplin to release it. And depending on what you read in the stories and how it's written and the interviews that you've heard, Chaplin either did or didn't know the severity of what was going on in Nazi Germany because he was later quoted as saying, I would have never done the film had I known, I would have never made a comedy out of it. Um, but I think, and who knows? I mean, I wasn't, it's hard to know what side is true on the counterpoint. People have said, well, that new chaplain said, that's wrong. He would have done the film anyway. He had this idea and he was going forward because he wanted to get the message out about how bad what was going on over there was. I will say if most of it was shot in Chaplin um, Studios in California and it almost had, I think with the juxtaposition of the, <coughs> the settings and that it was almost, well, it was stage-like, but it was also almost like theater-like. And I think the non-realistic aspects of those sets, and you could tell, no matter how much you repurpose and, and move around sets, I'm like, oh, that was in modern times. And he, of course, he's got Godard in it, although they were estranged at the time, you could not see any of that. There was a certain magic between, in my personal opinion, between Godard and Chaplin. Um, and they're just magic together. But I, I think what made the film palatable was the fact that the settings were so artificial and the slapstick comedy, I, first of all, there's no one that can make me, he makes me giddy like a little girl, Chaplin. I mean, I laugh through, I'm like a little kid, um, through the whole thing. I mean, even when he, drops the grenade down his pants and it's just I mean just there's all these little things and when they're in the airplane um the gentleman that I wrote his name down because I'm gonna forget the actor's name that he saves that ultimately you know I without giving the film away they meet up in the end um was a Reginald was a Reginald Gardner that that played the general that he saves um so I think all of those things made in and Chaplin's again trite word but genius was able to make the, the context and the topic palatable. And I mean, just in the scene where he, I think it was in some of the names too, garbage spelled in the German spelling of like G-A-R-B-I-T-S-C-H. Instead of Goebbels, he's got, you know, hair garbage. <laughs> it's like all these names. And, and at one point, I think garbage says to me, you can be the rule of the world. You'd be most, the most powerful person ever. And, and Hitler, you know, um, he gets up as Hitler. Now there's two, as you guys know, there's two of them. There's the barber 
who is basically the tramp who is essentially, he speaks minimally. And then there is um, Hinkle, him is Adnoid Hinkle. So um, he plays two roles in this film. And um, when Garbage says that to him, he gets almost giddy and has this, he starts prancing around his office, these balletic prances, and he's balancing the, go the globe that's, it's like a big balloon that's, it gives you chills. I mean, there's certain scenes that are, I mean, it, but only just the way that he was able to translate comedy and slapstick into such a atrocious um, topic was just beyond anything. And the ending, as we've talked about the monologue at the end, um, it was transcendent. Um, but there's, it's interesting too, and later I found out through watching the documentaries that Lenny Riefenstahl actually commented on these scenes, which is what, what I learned was, so watching these scenes when he's giving his speeches like he would be at Nuremberg, um, it, it, it echoed Riefenstahl's triumph of the will. And from what I understood and learned, the crowds weren't as big as what they were made out to be, but she, was who she was and was a, she had innumerable funds and made these crowds out to be that hundreds of thousands of people were viewing <clears throat> these speeches when they in turn really weren't, um, so it said. Um, and so they kind of, he was able to recreate that um, and just, he, he really satirized um, everything, but he, but in a way that got the point across um, and made it palatable, but also echoed the severity of the situation. And there was one quote that I really found poignant in the fact that like, here is this Hinkle character, Hitler, that is, they're completely self-loathing in what they're doing and, and what they're trying to um, accomplish and thank God didn't, which was at one point, Hinkle's character says, well, br brunettes are troublemakers. They're worse than the Jews. And here he's, in a, he's brunette himself in a room surrounded by brunettes. And it's just, anyway, that's my number one. I could go on. I won't watch the film. Fantastic, Kate. Uh, and uh, if you haven't seen The Great, Great Dictator, you should. It's oh, the one thing I do want to add, Dennis, I think partway through, Carl Struess became the cinematographer because um, something happened and Chaplin kind of lost faith in his, nor was it Roland, how do you, Totoro? Uh, like Toland, or Totoro, I'm sorry, yeah. So he, he replaced him, actually, as a cinematographer. I just found that out hmm. today. Number one. Arsenic and old lace. I'm sorry about one. that. I will cut this out. But <laughs> I just, I, I was so pent up to talk about Why it. Why cut it out? Leave it in there. It's real, man. It's real. <laughs> I don't have an honorable mention, but I do have a bone to pick. I don't like Philadelphia Story. <laughs> You don't. I don't, and this is why. Okay, I how, that can I mute her? how can I mute her? <laughs> I'm muting you now. I, I just, I just didn't think that it was as effective as a story um, as I expected it to be. I think maybe because it was hyped for me a little. Maybe bit. Because they had story in the title. 
Yeah. <laughs> you are. about Philadelphia. All right. What? No. Um, no, I just, uh, I don't like that what changes her character is that they make her think that she slept with someone while she was drunk and then she has to, right? Like they all play like, you know, you shouldn't have done, like there's this weird thing where like, you know, she doesn't remember and like she's had this blackout and it's kind of dicey to like, with someone's memory like that and mm-hmm. no, no, it didn't no. it didn't make me laugh and that and that it, it, it kind of I was like oh this is and and we're supposed to be like oh she's come back down to earth she's a she's a human being and I'm just like oh it, it was it was rough for me it was I rough think, I, I think Dennis that explains the generational differences yeah <laughs> yeah that's true that's probably true well, I'm watching it now, which is true. Like I watched it for the first time for this podcast. So very much through a lens of like, is this going to connect with me comedically? And it, it kind of upset me a little bit. In a uh, different I can way. understand. I can understand. I also, I don't think that's how that scene. That's not how that scene played to me. Go back and watch it. That is exactly what is fucking happening. Well, no, I know what you're doing. <laughs> right. She thinks something happened, but I feel like nobody they, else. They is... all play into it. They all play into this, like, intimate, and, and they're playing with, like, her mind. And Cary Grant especially is like, you know, what you did last night and stuff like that. I don't remember the exact lines, but go, seriously, go back and watch it. They all let her hang in that I always read that scene as they it's just like a misunderstanding well i i will it's, it's I've not seen a that misunderstanding like it, is used, times, it is used to make her come back down to earth and admit that she is false and that she's not this perfect fucking goddess and it's like not a great i'm like i could get on board with this if we had a different way of changing her her character and also i didn't think she was that stuck up to begin with i was like what's the problem <laughs> what yeah really why she, she seems great <laughs> So, yeah. So, I what's your number one? I love my number one was arsenic and old lace, of course. Sorry, Kate, <laughs> I cut you off. <laughs> oh, you didn't know. I just oh. love. I said I love Bridget's points. I love all your points. Oh. I love our group. I'm just gushing. I wish I could give you all. I love it too, and I and I like disagreeing because it's helpful. I I think it's I, that's one of my favorite things about people having lots of uh, knowledge and therefore different opinions and you get kind of like all the facets of the diamond and mm-hmm. you know, different well, perspectives which is great well i love yes, I, I love the philadelphia story and i and are, are you talking about the scene where she comes back in Cary grant's arms no i'm talking no, about the, the morning, morning after. after oh the morning after yes it's, it's uh, too, I'm gonna have to go back long. and relook at that. Yeah, yeah, it's too long. They let her hang in it, and there and there's this like big implication of like you know there's and there's like silent judgment from everyone. Pretty much, it feels like where everyone's like, "I saw you coming out of the such and such last night." With so, and she's like, "Oh my god!" And you can tell immediately she's like, "What happened to me last night?" And it was like, "Oh, oh. Uh, I, I might have, I might have." <laughs> you and I that. completely missed. <laughs> read that scene differently yeah no huh, definitely okay. go back me and also, watch it it's, it's Freeman, too much. me also so I, I watched it probably like five it. times last year just well you guys all know my input on the red shoes it was completely frigid i don't i don't know if you appreciate it but, <laughs> but it's I kind of on it, par with, yeah it's on par with like what you're saying where everyone has like a different lens of um perception but also i think with 
like the red shoes, it was just kind of like a re it's recurring and for women in cinema. So um, without going into that, I'm not giving, taking away anything from how well the film was, but just like, we can do better. We can do better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, Todd, you're number one. All right. Well, I am here once again to throw a monkey wrench into <laughs> and take full advantage of the- But I love your monkey wrenches. Yes, I, I'm, that's what I'm here for. Um, and it is October, so we're approaching Halloween. So uh, I focused on uh, a rather uh, movie with some terrifying moments, and I'm 100% uh, honest about that. Um, but also a genre that we haven't touched upon yet that we'll probably touch upon more as we move forward. And that is uh, Disney's 1942 Bambi. Ooh. Uh, yes. And, the, and a, a major reason I kept coming back to this one is because um, the, I, I always found, I mean, I, I have kind of a love-hate relationship with a lot of the Disney animated films. Um, and, but one of the things that has aged really well about Bambi is the fact that the villain in it is man, um, like 100%. And, uh, in fact, when the Australian wildfires were, uh, going berserk and there was an image of a kangaroo, a silhouette of a kangaroo jumping with flames in the background, it actually reminded me of an image from Bambi during the mm -hmm. huge forest fire at the end and um how you know obviously bambi's mother gets killed and that incredibly effective moment during the winter time and everything just goes quiet um it's horrifying i don't return to yeah. bambi very often actually you know people joke about it going oh bambi's you know mother getting killed is traumatic it, it is <laughs> i'm like you know if you go back and watch the film now, you know, it, it's 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 masterfully um, balanced in terms of its wonderment, um, its comedy, its its I say humanism, but it is about uh, the animals, um, and in fact, human beings is the problem uh, and the threat, mm -hmm. and I still see that more than ever uh, uh, across our globe. And I think, uh, and it's funny because when Bambi was released, I believe that it was a box office bomb. Um, I don't think it did very well. And I believe that Disney had to put uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs back in the theaters to recoup the money they were losing from Bambi. <laughs> wow. Run the dwarfs back out there. Yeah, yeah. So Bambi kind of found its way years later. Um, and you look back at it now and it's it's a it's a startlingly especially with the the Disney films that were being released at the time startlingly mature effort. Uh Pinocchio also came out in the 40s and and while I like Pinocchio and I, I appreciate the the themes running in it Bambi just um seems to just delve right into my gut and just pull straight out. It's it's actually a it's almost like comparable to the adaptation of Watership <laughs> Down to a certain extent. Of uh, what, Todd? Watership Down. Oh. Yeah. So um, I just, I think any film <laughs> that's able to communicate that amount of feelings in what, like an hour and 10 minutes uh, from 1942, still in the year 2021, is, is uh, 
worth looking at under the other. And I promise I will start looking at comedies in the 1940s. <laughs> Obviously, I am awful at the comedies. I'm God, I'm that's so a great you, pick, though. I'm so glad you did this. Are you kidding? This adds so much more depth and variety to the to the pod. Yes, yeah. I, I, yeah. I want to say that I have a I have a great emotional attachment to Bambi because, um, you know, it was made before I was born. But when I was three, my dad brought me a record player <clears throat> and it was a 45 and he had me two 45s. One was by Disney. One was Johnny Appleseed. And the other was Bambi. So I listened to those and I learned the songs and the thing. Then when I saw the movie, um, I had to read the books. So I read Bambi and Bambi's Children. And if you haven't read the books... You see where that wonderful, that whole attitude came from that, that Todd was talking about, about, um, you know, the perspective on man and the, on the animals uh, from the books, which are uh, just incredible. That's Long awesome. Time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Something that Bambi and the Great Dictator have in common is that I have. <laughs> There's a film. <laughs> Is that I have seen each of them once. And I remember very crisply like images and sequences from both of them mm -hmm. because of how good they are i have <laughs> dropped april showers beaming yeah. yeah i love that song my granddaughters love that song too they do i have never seen bambi or snow white and the seven dwarfs is this something i should go back and watch i never yeah. totally sure you're on disney plus and they're like an them. hour out of your time an hour and change they're honestly i haven't seen bambi since i was like five but Ditto. yeah yeah no uh, white holds up when, yes. I, when i was young when i was young uh my parents never took me to 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 see movies unless it was like tall in the saddle or red river or something oh. uh, <laughs> uh you know it was some john wayne western but uh, I never seen any animation, and I never really got into animation. So Bambi is so, the same. They're so beautifully done, you know, all the hand, the, not no no computer illustrations. Not that those aren't great too, but yeah, but the hand nothing's drawing, like it now. And yeah. what they had to do to to make that work is just it's fascinating. Yeah. Okay, so my number one is it's probably a film you've never heard of. Arsenic and Old Lace. <laughs> I think it's been on the list uh, 15 times already. Uh, arsenic and Old Lace. Uh, let's don't talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. Cary Grant was awful. The window box was stupid. The blocking was stupid. Uh, Jeez, there's yeah. really no accounting for taste anymore. We thought Karloff was scary. I mean, come on. <laughs> I never saw Boris Karloff. I did see, what's his name? Jim Macy? Ray, Raymond Massey? Raymond Massey. He's the one that played Jonathan. Right. Yeah, I loved him in that role. Yeah, it was know, great. Even the fake makeup with this, yeah. uh, uh, you know, where Peter Lorre fucked him up. Yeah, right. <laughs> so this is the last time we'll talk about it. Little shout out to how the aunties, like, Run, I, like they I'm, as, I'm assuming that Freeman's <laughs> number one is not going to be arsenic. Go Freeman. Did you want to do your your uh, special mentions, Chase? Oh, honorable mentions are so fucking many. Right, uh, that's my <laughs> Woman of the year, the great dictator. Uh, I cannot say enough about Monsieur Verdot. If you get a chance to see that, if you haven't seen it, it's, it's, 
I love the way it was structured. And I've already spoken about this, so I won't go into it too much. But the great dictator and Monsieur Verdot, Monsieur, Monsieur Verdot, um, was that his last, did you guys say? It was, it was, so I don't want to give the ending away, but it's long of the short, it's the ending of the tramp, if you will. Oh, uh, okay, yes, I understand that. But was that his last film? In America, and then he left, but he did other, he did a couple of scant ones, I think, after. Okay. Um, we have Countess from Hong Kong, right? That was him, wasn't it? <clears throat> that I don't know. Yeah. I, I'd have to check, but uh, when you introduced me to Mère Verdo, I, I just loved it. I just loved it. I've seen it twice. It was so well structured. I can't believe, you know, it's like if you look at the Capra films and the, the Hitchcock films, there's a, there's a chronology to the way they're shot and the way they're edited and the way they're put together. Um, Michel Verdot uh, was put together a little differently, and I like the way it was done. And this is interesting and kind of goes against what I said with you can the echoing of real life and cinema. And this I don't mind because it brings so much heart to the film. And you see a part of him that echoes um, cultural, socio issues that need to be talked about. Um, but Todd, this also was a huge flop at the time like it's just one of those films that you know a lot of times unless it's like Siskel and Ebert and even then they mess up it's like never listen to the critics because this is like what Chase said I, I can't say enough good things about it there's a few documentaries that go along with it um, on Criterion and it is I, masterful in so many ways it's long um, there maybe are some parts that linger um, but not bothersome. And I felt just, yeah, it's, it's an unbelievable. Can I, can I just say one thing, Kate, to you? can say anything to me, Chase. Okay. <laughs> one of the things I did not like about Monsieur Verdot, Verdot is Martha Ray. I just couldn't get over her acting. It was just, it stood out to me. Over the top? Well, she's yeah, over the top. Stage plus. actor. Stage actor. Very theater, yeah. But over you know, the top, plus plus. Yeah, <laughs> but she still was such a great part of, they complimented each other. Um, I will say, you know, real life translating to, to film, you can see how much what Chaplin was going through in his personal life, even watching like seven years later, this was filmed. I mean, just how much he had aged. And it just was, um, yeah. yeah, just go see the film, watch it. It's great. And well, supper, time, and, supper time is calling. And, uh, and, and Freeman, just to, to further answer your thing, Stray Dogs by Kurosawa, uh, uh, Bicycle Thieves, which, Todd has mentioned. Um, uh, I love the films, uh, but they're foreign. I kind of, I didn't press them, but they were out there. We could have brought them up, and I'm glad Todd did. Yeah. Uh, so you're number one. Um. So my number one was 
uh, the Philadelphia story, but uh, since we've talked about that, <laughs> um, I'm going to bring up another one that uh, I wasn't sure where to, and it's going to lead into my honorable mentions. Um, so my number one that I'm going with is 1942's uh, Cat People, directed by Jacques Tourner, uh, starring Simone Simon, Kent Smith, Jane Randolph, uh, produced by Val Luton for a a budget of I think five dollars and a handshake. Um, <laughs> Val Luton was like a famous huckster of Hollywood. I haven't seen most of his movies, um, but he, I guess hucksters, he knew how to make stuff work on no money. Um, and Cat People is a really effective little horror movie. Um, it's it's very it. So the thing is, again, they had no money. So it's about a woman who turns into a a, a leopard and uh, kills people a lot. Um, and they couldn't afford really showing her turn into a leopard, like the Wolfman or anything. So it's it's just a a big cat that they got somewhere that they let loose on the set like five times um but the way that they work around it is it's all atmosphere there's a very famous part where a woman's being stalked um that has a, a famous kind of revolutionary misdirect um at the at the end of the sequence um and yeah it's it's dripping with atmosphere it's a really again the <laughs> uh, I'm sure the acting and the sexual or gender politics of the time um, are dated, um, but I think it really holds up. It's a very good atmospherical chiller. Um, and I wanted to dedicate my honorable mentions to the horror genre of the 40s because there was a lot of really cool stuff going on there, starting with 1945's Dead of Night, which is a quirky little um, uh anthology horror movie from England that uh, not only revolutionized it didn't it didn't start but it kind of popularized and um, the anthology format that we still see today with movies like Creepshow, Trick or Treat and TV shows like The Dark oh. Side all those um, and also it it had like an impact on metaphysics um, Look up, it has a very interesting Wikipedia page. Um, and then uh, House of Frankenstein, directed by Earl C. Kenton, which is the best of the Universal Monster team-up movies. And those, the Universal Monster movies of the 40s, specifically of the 40s, because they didn't start teaming up until then, but they'd mostly been established in the 30s, Chase. Um, and uh, it really influenced the, the uh, cinematic universe format of today um at you know 80 years before they started um and then lastly uh the spiral staircase directed by robert siodmak who's a very interesting filmmaker of that time period um also very good at making a lot of atmosphere on like no money um but the spiral staircase is famous because it is a pretty much the first slasher movie mm -hmm. um it's weird. It's uh, it's not great, but it is. It's definitely worth watching if you're interested in the um, beginning of the genre and stuff. Uh, so yeah, Spiral Staircase, House of Frankenstein, Dead of Night, and Cat People are all, and also The Uninvited, which is a delightful ghost movie that uh, is very British. And uh, yeah, 
This is a great Halloween list. Where can yes, we? There we go. Are those all on YouTube? Criterion, like what Criterion? They're on Canopy, Criterion. Um, I know Criterion should have Cat People and Uninvited because those are both. Uh, there's a lot of movies called The Uninvited that are apparently terrible. I've only seen this one. They weren't invited, so. <laughs> they were not did invited. Ever, that was horrible, all Dennis. These people that did not receive an invite. Freeman, did you ever see the remake of Cat People by Paul Schrader? No, I. it's been on my list for a long time. Paul but Schrader? I did it? Yeah, Paul Schrader, it's a completely different movie. It's just completely like. Completely Sex different. and blood soaked, and it's Malcolm it's McDowell. Like Paul Schrader, right? well. um, it's gonna be like the one Paul Schrader film I haven't seen. He <laughs> is literally just walking around naked through the whole thing. It's a completely so, misogynist. So that's why Gene Siskel liked it. You okay. guys, is, is, is um, I'm wondering. I just think of Bowie and his song. Did he base it off of the movie? That song is from movie. that movie. It's it from the cool. Schrader movie. Yeah. For the Paul Schrader movie, yeah. yeah okay, yeah. cool. Wow, okay. It's just, it's just such schlock, but it's such an easy <laughs> do schlock. You know? Are you a, you're a Schrader person as well? Are you guys big fans? Schrader? I'm not. I'm a Schrader a fan. Huge fan. I mean, I've never seen, like, Taxi Driver. <laughs> um, are you a fan? I, you haven't Bye. seen Taxi Driver? I oh, haven't wow. seen Taxi Driver. <laughs> you haven't seen Taxi Driver? When we get to Scorsese, I'm in trouble because I've seen most of the big ones, but like I haven't seen Taxi Driver. I haven't seen Casino. Well, that is the big okay. one. That yeah. is the big one, yeah. I've Those seen After Hours. That's a good one. That's a fun one. That's a and fun Paul Schrader's one. latest movie, The Card Player, is great. Um, I did see that. Oh, I can't wait to see that. Can't it's, wait to see that. It's what? tough. Oscar Isaac is one of my favorite actors. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so are, we, gonna are, be, are we shooting for next Saturday? Todd, what did you just say? I, I couldn't hear what Todd just said. Oh, I just said watch Taxi Driver before this group gets to the 70s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There'll be a lot okay, of movies uh, that I need to watch before we get to those. Saturday days. is the day before yeah. Halloween, I want to say. La ladies, ladies and gentlemen, this has been a wonderful time with podcasts everybody was wonderful except for todd who uh <laughs> fucked up the whole thing by uh by coming up with others and I am out. others um the uninvited showed up with others uh but anyway i'm glad he did it was so wonderful todd thank you so much and thank you for, uh, thank you for so, embracing my 1940s comedies just just Hopelessness, I appreciate it. <laughs> but anyway, I love you guys all, and uh, I will meet with you again on email in the next uh, in the upcoming week, and uh, we will do nineteen uh, forties directors and actors. Thank you for watching the Love of Films, a production of Left Bank Films. Today's chapter deals with films of the nineteen forties our favorite comedies, and other films from the 1940s. We hope you enjoyed it. For further information about our podcasts and other podcasts and the results of this podcast, please visit leftbankfilms.com, The Love of Film. Thank you very much.